0: this morning at the last of our five wisdom book overviews and next week we'll begin exploring some of the topics within those books in a little more detail and I'm pretty confident that most of you who may have read um, this particular book that we're going to look at today, The Song of Songs, um, will probably be thinking what on earth is she going to say about this book? Because Song of Songs is not a book that you hear preached very often. I don't think I've ever heard it preached. There is no other book in the Bible that is quite like this little book. It is a book that stops most new Christians in their tracks. They read through the history and then they keep going and they keep going and eventually they come to Song of Songs and they just think, what on earth is this doing in the Bible? But it is there, all right. It is part of the inspired Word of God, complete with all of its vivid imagery and its evocative language. More mature Christians, of course, are very well aware of its presence in their Bibles and they're aware of the general nature of its content. But most of us manage to get through life kind of steering around it, like that... um, relative at Christmas that is kind of awkward to talk to you nod and you smile but you try and steer your way around to other people who are you're more comfortable with and that's often how we we treat this book we're not really comfortable with it so we don't spend a lot of time in it and we try and move on to something else that we're more comfortable with and often our discomfort with this book comes from the fact that we simply don't understand it We're not even sure how we're supposed to approach it. And if that sounds like you, then you're in pretty good company because down through the ages, all sorts of people have debated how we are supposed to approach this book. And it wasn't only modern readers who weren't exactly sure what to do with this book. Song of Songs very nearly didn't make it into the canon of scripture. Uh, Many of the rabbis who were debating its inclusion in that third part of um, the Hebrew Bible that they called the writings, Um, so they had the law and they had the prophets and they had the writings, and when it came to debating what would be included in the writings, many of them, it seems, were put off by the nature of the content in this book. Perhaps maybe it was a little too explicit for some of them. Perhaps they were put off by the fact that nowhere in the book does God get a mention. Perhaps they were put off by the fact that it doesn't cover much of the content that we normally find in the rest of the Old Testament. There's nothing in there about the law or about Israel's covenant relationship. And it doesn't even directly explore the nature of wisdom like some of the other wisdom books do, so Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Both of those tackle what wisdom is in a bit more direct way than what this book does. But one rabbi is said to have stood in defence of this book and he described it as the holy of holies. And indeed the Jews came to revere this book and they would recite it at their greatest national feast, the Passover. It has been said that among the wisdom writings, they considered proverbs to be like the outer court of the temple, and Ecclesiastes was like the holy place, but Song of Songs they considered to be like the holy of holies. And I think that if the Jews so revered this book, then we do well to at least try and understand it and to stop navigating our way around it when we read our Bibles. So as we work our way through this morning, what I've got for you are a few questions that most people will have when they come to this book and then I want to give you a few pointers about how to read the book well. So the first and most basic question is, what is this? It is quite simply a love song about human romance and it's written in the style of ancient near eastern lyric poetry but it is not just any love song or any poem it is the song of songs and we know from other terms that we find in our bibles like king of kings or holy of holies that when we get this repetition of these superlatives that means it's the best of So this is like a best-of album of ancient Hebrew love songs. King of Kings described Christ as the best king and the Holy of Holies was the most holy of the holy places. This is the best of songs. And in fact, what we actually find here is a collection of at least six but maybe anywhere up to about 13 individual songs or poems, all of different lengths, So in that regard it is a little bit like Proverbs in that it's a collection but its title, Song of Songs, tells us that in its final collected form it is meant to be read or understood as a number of scenes within one complete piece. Now all of us are familiar with love songs. They're as much a part of our culture today as perhaps what they were back then. But while we all know in a general sense what a love song is, most of us aren't really well versed in ancient Near Eastern poetry or love songs. And we have to keep that in mind as we work our way through. We can't assume that the objective of this love song would be the same as one of our love songs today, nor can we assume that we should interpret it as we would a modern day love song. The next question is also a very simple question, who wrote it? And this is not such an easy question to answer. So tradition ascribes authorship to Solomon and indeed many of your older Bibles will even call this book the Song of Solomon. And mostly this came about because of the first verse that is in our Bibles within this book The first verse in the NIV reads, Solomon's Song of Songs, which sounds pretty definitive. But many other versions read the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, which is one step down in being definitive, a little less definitive. The very big issue here centres around a very, very small, tiny little, Hebrew preposition that is attached to the name Solomon which can carry a whole lot of different meanings by, so the song by Solomon is one of those meanings but it can also mean belonging to or according to it can mean about, this could be the song about Solomon it can mean for or dedicated to, so this could be a song dedicated to Solomon or written for Solomon. Now we also know that in ancient times it was also common practice even to dedicate a book to a well-known person or even to write as though that person had written the book themselves. Now today that would be considered identity theft or plagiarism but back then it was considered honorific. If you wrote a book in the name of someone else, it was a tribute that you were paying to them. So, this first line could mean that Solomon wrote the book, but it could also mean that the song belonged to Solomon. So, he or his staff could have acquired all of these songs and put them together and kept them in his collection of wisdom literature, or it could mean that the song was dedicated to Solomon or even that the song was written according to the wisdom tradition of Solomon. So we can't glean too much from that first line, and we need to keep going through the book to try and help us decide uh, in this respect. And if we read on, we find that Solomon is indeed referred to by name within the book, but it is always in the third person, which is a strange way to write about yourself if you were the author. Throughout the book, the young woman describes her lover as king. But it is in much the same way as someone today might describe their lover as Prince Charming or hero. It's a term of endearment. The main voice within the poem is that of a woman, not of a man. And finally, whilst Solomon was known as a lover... The couple within this book have eyes only for each other, exclusively for each other. And the book talks about a model of a loving, monogamous relationship. That's what God holds out in this book as ideal for us. And Solomon with his 700 wives and 300 concubines is hardly the model of that type of relationship. So that's... A long way to answer this question of of who wrote this book. The The short answer is we really don't know. Could have been Solomon, but it may not have been. And it may not even be the same author for the different parts of the book. It really doesn't matter so much to our understanding of the book. But what is important is this next question, why is it in the Bible? What's it doing in the Bible? And the simplest answer to this question, as we've discussed throughout the last five weeks, is because wisdom is about living well within God's created order. And when you have a think about that, relationships, our relationships are fundamental to living well within God's created order. If you think about what happens when relationships go bad, it affects just about every other aspect of life. When a relationship goes bad it affects any children that are part of that relationship. There are financial implications. It's also very hard for someone whose relationship is struggling to function well in their workplace because your mind is is full of the strife that's at home. So making good choices in our relationships is therefore a fundamental component of wise living. That's the simple answer. The more complicated answer here is that this song might point to something greater than itself. And throughout history people have seen all sorts of things in this song. In fact, the traditional approach to reading Song of Songs is an allegorical one. That means that the characters and the words within the song contain some hidden or special meaning which is beyond their face value and that was the majority view held of this song among the jews who viewed it as an image of god's love for his people israel and that was then taken up by the christians who saw it or adopted it as referring to christ as the groom and his bride being the church now the way that we interpret this song is critical to the way we read it and therefore the way that we will understand it. So it's not a question that we should be skipping over lightly. Whilst it doesn't matter so much who the author is, it does matter how we read it. Do we take the face value reading and enjoy this as a beautiful poem about human love? Or is there some hidden jewel there within this text that indicates to us that it's pointing beyond itself to something greater. Is this a song that's really about Christ and his church or are we trying to force it to be something that maybe it's not? And I would suggest to you that the fundamental issue here is not what the text says. It is with our discomfort over what is in the text. What we find in the song doesn't meet our expectations of what we think should be in the Bible. So let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean there. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Or this one. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest. So an apple tree is there as... A tree that produces fruit that's edible and the forest trees don't. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He's taken me to the banquet hall and his banner over me is love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. Or this one. My lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my lover and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing with myrrh on the handles of the lock. And I'm guessing that any of you who perhaps haven't read this book are now thinking, I should really go home and read this. And you're probably going to want to read it even more if I tell you at one stage... Um, ancient Jews were said to have been forbidden to have read this material until after their 30th birthday. In fact, one early church council even forbade any interpretation that was not wholly allegorical. But there are also probably others of you who are probably not really comfortable with having your pastor read those words Uh, from the front in a church service. They don't seem to have a lot of religious significance. There's no mention of God. The content is a bit awkward or embarrassing for some of us and so our natural response is to say, oh, we must be missing something. We don't understand it. We've missed the religious significance. This passage must be operating on a higher level than what we are and so we look for another interpretation and that is what has happened to this song all throughout history as people have sought to uncover its hidden meaning they didn't quite know what to do with it so they looked elsewhere within the bible for something similar to see if that would help them understand how they should interpret this song and they did indeed find similar love songs there's one in Isaiah Isaiah's song of the vineyard And there's one in Hosea about an adulterous wife. And so, since the love songs in the prophets were clearly allegories about God and his people, Israel, and since this song is clearly a love song, then it must also be an allegory. And that is kind of like saying, This is a cat. It has whiskers. All cats have whiskers. Well, this animal has whiskers, so it must also be a cat. The argument doesn't follow. So this allegorical interpretation was popular amongst the ancient Jews. It was popular amongst the early church fathers and it became the dominant interpretation throughout Christian tradition for a very long time. Those of you who are older... That is probably what you were brought up on. But it's quite different from these other prophetic allegories because unlike them, there is nothing at all in it that points to Israel's history, nor is there anything in it that contains any sort of national symbolism. And those who hold to that purely allegorical approach sometimes get themselves a bit tied up in knots trying to make every verse mean something that's not there in the face value and sometimes the interpretations end up contradicting each other now with the passage of time and we're fortunate to be further down the scale in terms of time writings that are similar to this song similar to songs of song have been discovered in Egypt and in Babylon And we've learned that love poetry was part of the culture of Egypt. And while there are still many who hold to an allegorical approach, increasingly the song is being accepted on face value for what it appears to be, a collection of love poems about human relationships, the love between a man and a woman. Now, all of that is not to say that this song can't point us towards something greater. It can. The love that is expressed there between two human beings can become a vehicle for us to consider our own relationship with Christ. We think about not only our own earthly relationships, but also that relationship, the most important one, that we'll ever have in our lifetimes, that relationship with Christ. The desire that those characters express for each other within the song causes us not only to think about human relationships but also our desire or lack thereof for Jesus. And so it is possible for this book to impart wisdom on more than one level, on the physical level but also on the spiritual level. So I want to move on now and discuss a few just little pointers, things to look out for when you're reading the book that will help with understanding what it's trying to teach. And the first one of these is the voices that are present within the song. So there is a lead singer here and she is female. She's the female voice in the song. There is a male that accompanies her And then there's like this group that are the backing singers, I would call them. They're known as the Daughters of Jerusalem, which is probably a great name for a band, the Daughters of Jerusalem. And they are the female or the woman's friends or companions. And our English Bibles helpfully separate out who's speaking. So you'll see down the column of your Bibles, um, it indicates who the speakers are. Now, this wasn't present in the Hebrew original, it's been put in there to help us read it because without it, it's hard to figure out what's going on in this book. So in your NIVs, um, the woman is labelled as the beloved, the lover is the man, and the companions or these daughters of Jerusalem are called friends. Even with that, in your Bibles, that marking down the side, it can still be very hard to keep track of what is going on in this book. So another thing to look out for is the types of songs that they sing. They sing many songs. They fall into many categories. There are descriptive songs. So he describes her and she describes him. And it's in terms of their physical features, their strength or their beauty or their, um, some other aspect of their character. And all of it is in glowing and poetic terms. Occasionally she will describe herself, but it's not in the same way. So she might describe herself highlighting her unworthiness or highlighting her chastity or, or something like that. There are songs of admiration, so the pair of them delight in each other. They don't describe necessarily physical characteristics, they just delight in each other's presence. There are songs of yearning that express their desire for one another. There are songs of invitation, so we read things like, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come away, my lover, and be like a gazelle. There are songs of commitment, and in those we read things like, My lover is mine and I am his, or I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. There are teasing songs, the couple tease each other as young couples would do today. There are boasting songs, so she boasts about her purity, they boast about each other. There are searching songs, so For most of the book, the couple are actually apart and they're looking for each other. Um, So you read things like, All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but I did not find him. And then finally there are songs of oath. And these are a little bit different from the rest in that mostly they are directed by the woman to her companions, these daughters of Jerusalem. And mostly... Um, she's asking them to do something that she wants them to do and usually that something is for them not to arouse or awaken love before the time is right. So that's an important theme right throughout the book because she repeats it three times in three different parts of the book. So normally we like to read something from start to finish and we like our stories to follow a straight line track and a lot of people have tried to do this with this song where they've tried to look for a courtship and then an engagement and then a marriage and consummation and on like that in a straight line and that's a hard task to find this in this book Um, because what you will find is that there really isn't a straight line progression through the book. There's more an ebb and flow and we have to just go with the flow of what there is and and that's sometimes what love is like. Um, So they start off together at the beginning of the book, then for much of the rest of the book they're separate and their ideas flow round and round and they come back to the same theme and repeat it and on and on it goes. Somewhere towards the end there is a beautiful statement about love that is sort of like the conclusion of the ideas in the book. I'll read it to you. It says, Love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. And so if you've ever had cause to question why a book like this is called Wisdom Literature, I think that conclusion gives you the answer. You cannot put a value on love. We must treasure it, whether it's within our earthly relationships or in that most precious relationship that we have with Christ. You cannot put a value on love. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. So the book ends with the man and the woman, they're still in the garden, they're still desiring one another, they're still calling out to one another and they're still pursuing one another. So it's really an ending that isn't an ending because it's open-ended and that I think is exactly like love. The next thing I want to highlight is the way metaphors are used throughout the book. So we like to think of metaphors in a very visual way. That's our natural tendency. And if you do that when you're reading the Song of Songs and you apply that to the description that the man gives of the woman you will have to come to the conclusion that she's either the most hideously ugly person imaginable or that the man is completely off his head with what he's writing. Um, Metaphors don't work like that in this poem. They are used in Hebrew poetry as primers to cause the reader to reflect on the characteristics of the person being described. They're not visual. So when the woman is described as having a neck like the Tower of David, you're not supposed to think of her with a giraffe-like neck and the complexion of mud bricks. When you read that her lips are like scarlet thread, you're supposed to think of them being fine and smooth and round and red. And when you read that her hair is like a flock of goats, it's not supposed to conjure up a whole lot of animals clinging onto her scalp. You're supposed to imagine goats coming down from a well-fed pasture and her hair being thick and long and soft and flowing and lustrous like, like cashmere that's been grown on, on good pasture. So do you get the idea? If you think you understand where we're going, then I'm going to leave it to you to try and figure out the breasts that are like twin fawns. Is Is he saying that they're small and brown and hairy? Or is there another meaning that he's trying to get at? So that's your homework for this week. So the final thing that I want to highlight when you're reading through this book is the repeated use of imagery. And in the case of this song, the imagery is garden imagery and it runs right through the book and it's important. Let me give you a couple of examples of this garden imagery. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing is coming, the cooing of doves is heard in our land, the fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Or this one. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may be spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste of its choice fruits. And last one, my lover has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my lover's and my lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. Now they're just a few examples of many of this garden imagery that permeates right through the song. And they are supposed to return us to a familiar scene. Can you suggest what that scene might be? Eden. The garden scene in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, before the fall, when the man and his wife lived together in that order that God had created, the end of Genesis chapter 2 tells us that they were both naked and yet they felt no shame. And so here in this song... That is what God is holding out to us again. We see that innocent delight and pleasure that the man and the woman took in each other's bodies without shame before the fall. That is reclaimed here in this song. Here, once again, God is holding out that unity and intimacy of marriage to the exclusion of all others as his ideal for us in our relationships. It is as though the couple in the song are presented as the model of what human relationships would be were they not tainted by sin. Here the love between the man and the woman is presented as desirable, it is presented as mutual, it is presented as beautiful and completely fulfilling and exclusive of all others. And we'll cover this some more when we um, start exploring some of the topics in more detail, when we look at um, what the wisdom literature says about um, wise living in terms of our relationships. So I'm not going to dwell on it too much this morning, but here in the song what is very clear is that neither party had any thought for any other. They have eyes only for each other. Their desire for one another is strong and they are completely fulfilled in their relationship and have not a hint of any shame at all in their love and that I think is what God intended for us in our earthly relationships and it's difficult to think about that sort of love without thinking about Christ and his very great love for us so Yes, use the song to cause you to reflect on your earthly relationships but also use it to reflect on your spiritual relationship with Christ. In a world that is corrupted by sin, that says to us, have whatever you want, with whoever you want, whenever you want, we have to work hard on both our human relationships and our relationship with Christ to attain anything like that ideal that is laid out for us back in Genesis and also here in this song. And there is plenty of advice within the song um, that will help us to do that and we'll look at that when we come to some of the topical uh, work. But it is this garden imagery that reminds us that this world that we are living in, where we have to form our own relationships, is not what God intended it to be, but that one day it will be restored. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and that place will resound with a love that is completely untainted by sin. And that, I think, is the hope that this beautiful song holds out for us all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that hope. We long for that day when we will experience true and untainted love in your presence. May the words that this next song express, may they speak to you something of that longing that you have placed in our hearts for you. We love you and worship you, Lord. Amen.